Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. Chris here. Today, we're joined by education law reporter Mark Walsh for our first ever sidebar, and we're super excited about that. Unfortunately, there was an overzealous gardener outside of Mark's window during our recording. So at about the 35-minute mark, you might hear a little extra noise. Uh, we did what we could to, to minimize it, but just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, we're so excited for this episode and for Mark joining us. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we still shared it with you. So happy holidays and enjoy. It's for educational purposes only. Well, Chris and Jamie always try to provide accurate information. The law is like what I'm willing to eat. It's always changing. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship, but they promised me it would be a lot of fun for you. Can I get my candy now? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chalk and Gavel, where we explore how the law shapes education one case at a time. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Jamie Cudlitz. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and happy holidays. Today, we have a little bit of a holiday gift for all of you. We are excited to share our first sidebar episode. There are so many interesting topics to talk about in education law that every now and then we'll take a little break from our normal episode format where we talk about one particular case uh, to bring you something a little different. And in today's sidebar, we're going to talk to you about the role that the Supreme Court has played in shaping education. We'll talk a little bit about how the court works, some of the big cases over the years, uh, as well as what's currently on the docket. And to do that, we are joined today uh, by Mark Walsh. So Mark Walsh is a reporter who covers the Supreme Court for the ABA Journal, for SCOTUS blog, also covers education law issues for Education Week. So we are absolutely thrilled to have Mark here with us. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed the first few episodes of the podcast. So, oh, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and your check is in the mail for saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark, give us a little bit of background. So, how did you get involved with the court? How did you get involved in reporting on all of this stuff? Yeah. So. Um, Education Week is a uh, publication that, uh, you know, goes out to educators nationwide and now, you know, on, uh, most mostly read on the web. And uh, I started there way back in the late 1980s and was covering different uh, things. And uh, But Education Week has been around since 1981 and has always had a Supreme Court reporter. And uh, after a few years there, I expressed my interest didn't get the beat right away, but uh, by 1991, the Supreme Court reporter was leaving, and I was given that beat. And the timing was uh, interesting because in the spring of 1991, I started going to the court with the reporter who was leaving to start learning the ropes. And I was there the very end of that term and was there when Justice Thurgood Marshall announced his retirement and had a very rare press conference uh, where he said, you know, I'm I'm old and falling apart and it's time to leave. And and uh, wow. that that was sort of the most remarkable thing in my early time there. Wow. Yeah. That's, and so you've just been doing it for 30 plus years now. Yes. That's amazing. Uh, there, there was a short break where I was more of an editor, uh, the Washington editor of Education Week. And uh, uh, but my reporters who, who were assigned during that time, there were two or three of them. And, and they were always a little bit, I think, worried that I would come still come to the big cases for, for argument. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I eventually did move back uh, to the beat. Uh, sure. Well, let's, you know, for our listeners' sake, let's just do a real quick overview of what the Supreme Court is and how it operates. Yeah, I would say that they're not always right, but they are last. Uh, <laughs> so the Supreme Court, you know, it's been nine justices for a while now. 
Uh, they are the last word on the meaning of the United States Constitution, and pretty much every lower court or other kind of lower governmental entity has to follow what the Supreme Court says. Uh, and so, you know, they've got some really significant authority, but that authority is also limited in really important ways. They're limited in what kind of cases and controversies they can hear. And, you know, they're also limited in kind of relying on other branches of government to kind of enforce their edicts. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, they're really, really important, uh, but they are also importantly limited as well. Yeah. So we've talked about this in earlier episodes that federal issues are for federal courts um, state issues are for state courts. So the Supreme Court tends to hear those federal issues, right? And so they settle disputes with between states as well, right? Like when we've got circuit mm -hmm. splits and it don't, isn't it maritime law too, like piracy and stuff like that? <laughs> high seas. How many of those cases have you heard, Mark? <laughs> the, well, there was actually an interesting one this term that involved a, a yacht that uh, had run aground. And there were jokes about purchasing the yacht involving Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. Oh, that's uh, right. So so the, <laughs> hmm. the, those do come up. Um, I guess they do. Well, so, you know, as you were mentioning, the difference between state and, and federal jurisdiction. And of course, uh, a case in the Supreme Court has to have a federal question, whether that's out of the U.S. Constitution or, or federal statutory law. Um, so, you know, uh, we're going to get to the history, but, uh, you know, back in the 1800s, there just were not many federal cases or questions involving education. But you, you touched on one, uh, a state case in, in that uh, episode of yours about the Mahanoy uh, speech case, the student yeah. speech case. Um, but the famous case from the Vermont Supreme Court of 1859, Lander versus Seaver, that did mm -hmm. not end up going up to the Supreme Court because uh, although that was uh, a little bit about that student's speech mocking his schoolmaster in what seems very tame terms today, uh, the, the lawsuit was brought uh, under a state law uh, tort, I think, of battery because uh, he, mm -hmm. he had been uh, oh. uh, spanked or, or used the uh, switch by as punishment. Right. And, and uh, so, so those kinds of things just didn't uh, work their way up to the Supreme Court the way they began to in, in the 20th century. Right. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So, you know, we've got these nine justices. It's been nine justices for a while. I think, you know, historically they rode circuit, but that's not something that I think we need to worry about anymore. And so they hear these cases, they've had a really profound impact. And I say they, I, you know, oftentimes we talk about the court as an entity itself. So it, the court itself has had a really profound impact on education and education policy. So what cases does the Supreme Court hear? So I think if you include the pauper cases, which are the so-called uh, unpaid cases uh, where uh, that, that is usually a prisoner case, uh, there's more like 8,000 appeals or petitions that come to the court every year. Wow. They have been taking lately only around 60. And when I started that 30, 32 years ago, they were taking closer to 100. Oh, wow. And before that, my like 150. And what's remarkable, I mean, is that even like, Back in the middle part of the 20th century, they were devoting two hours of argument to every case. And now, in, in theory, it's one hour, although in reality, it is closer to two hours the way uh, hmm. uh, oral arguments have kind of dragged on since they've been back on the bench uh, in, after the pandemic. So they, they sometimes are asked, like, why don't they take more cases some of the answers include that there are fewer laws being passed by Congress and any kind of new big law like the Affordable Care Act will generate mm -hmm. some litigation that uh, lower courts know what the circuit splits are a little better now because of the Internet and better communication. And, uh -huh. and sometimes they resolve those among themselves. That's one theory. I don't know how true that is because, um, but of course, you know, the biggest sort of ticket into the Supreme Court is a, a split in authority, a, a split in opinions of the federal circuit courts. And, and then if it's a federal matter, you want to be applying the law uniformly across the country. Sure. I mean, does that kind of cover how, uh, so, you know, about roughly 8,000 cases per year, petitions or appeals or whatever, and they end up only taking 60, roughly. And actually, like, I'm interested, because it, it doesn't feel like I hear 60 decisions every single year. Mm -hmm. 
Is that because so many of them just fly under the radar and nobody cares, so they don't get much airtime? Or are they ruled differently? Or how does that work? So you have your blockbuster cases, which I think we can all think of, like Dobbs abortion case, yeah. the affirmative action case. You have your B-level cases, which are cases that are just a notch or two down in importance, but also have like an interesting story involved, uh, interesting narrative. And you have your sort of C-level cases, which <laughs> just may be very arcane a statutory case interpreting, yeah. you know, uh, a maritime provision or a provision of social security related law. And those are the ones you don't hear much, much about. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems like every, every, uh, what, June or July, yeah. when, whenever the end of the term is, that's when we get those blockbuster decisions. Yeah. And that's when the Supreme Court really like is front and center in the news cycle and things like that. Right. Or, you know, when we've got a nomination to replace a justice and things like that. Otherwise, yeah, like you said, Jamie, they do kind of fly under the radar. Yeah. One thing I might add is just the way, the way it functions almost like a school year. Right. Just as far as they take the bench first Monday in October, they have some cases on their plate already. They keep adding some cases and then they endeavor and usually do decide most of the cases that they've taken up for that term. And they reach a point in the term where they, you know, say, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll hear this, but we're going to, you know, be carried over to next term. But, mm. but there's, um, you know, I've, I've sometimes joked on SCOTUS blog about there, there are certain aspects of the court and the building that are reminiscent of school, <laughs> including bells that go <laughs> off in, in the whole building when the court finishes. And uh, there's uh, even a wood shop. Um, so really? <laughs> yes. There's a wood shop? Like, is it functioning? Yes, because there's a need sometimes for certain little wooden parts of the courtroom to be replaced and, and, uh, and, and chairs for the offices. And It's not like for Justice Thomas to go in like when he's bored and just kind of whittle. Uh, I, I, he, he might. I, I mean, have I, a mental <laughs> image. Justice Alito doing some whittling, yes. right? Like. <laughs> That's so... I, wow, I had no idea. I, I, could, I could go on. But. So they don't outsource their furniture. I, I know they have a wood shop. <laughs> there's a basketball court too, right? Correct. So there's a gymnasium. Uh, the little joke of tour guides is it's the highest court in the land um, oh. just because it's above the courtroom <laughs> and there's no basketball permitted during oral argument because they actually are afraid the sound might come through. And, and uh, this is where Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, who just died about a week ago as mm -hmm. we're recording this, when she got to the court, she started some exercise classes, you know, geared toward the women who work in the building. So you've got a gym, You've got a cafeteria, you got bells that go off, you got a wood shop. They're pretty much in business from October to June. Uh, it, it's a lot like school. And you know what? I guess one of the things that you just mentioned there that made me think of this, like I think it's important to note that it's not just nine people who work in this building, right? Like they've got law clerks and they've got like all kinds of is this a big bustling place? So it it is. But they are noted for being pretty spare in their their staff. I mean, they have a lot of police officers, their own police force. But then you have the law clerks, which are four clerks per justice. They're uh, hired uh, from the top law schools pretty much. And they have clerked uh, once or twice before for lower court clerks. But they serve generally for one term, with some exceptions. You have a very small staff of each justice's chambers besides besides the law clerks. And then just some common areas, you know, there's a counselor to the chief justice who's kind of the city manager of the whole place. And there's a budget office and a tech support and those kinds of things. And the clerk's office, you know, is a big operation because there's just a lot of paperwork that comes in. Mm -hmm. Everything's filed electronically now, but paper is still the official filing. Uh, it's a place where, as Michael Scott once said uh, on The Office, important business is done on paper. <laughs> um, and, and then the marshal's office, which oversees the police, and then all, kind of all these other operations is, is kind of big. But you know, there are plenty of other agencies in Washington that are much bigger than the Supreme Court. Of course. Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, knowing that there's probably a couple hundred people working here when you don't, you know, you, you really only hear about nine, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd love to talk a little bit more and just get your sense on like, how do decisions actually get made with those nine justices? Um, if it's like a school, I just imagine them all sitting around a conference table 
in the central office, um, you know, just kind of hashing it out until they've got something. Sure. So that is is basically correct. Really? And this is where certainly I've I've spent a lot of time with the papers of the justices, uh, but they take an initial vote on a case that they've heard that same week they heard it. Uh, They have conference uh, at least a couple of times during an argument week. By conference, I mean is their private meeting. They have a conference room devoted just to that. This is the room where the most junior justice has to take notes and be the one to answer the door because no one else is allowed in there. (laughs) And they're sometimes asked, like, well, who's knocking on the door to bother them in conference? And it might be that, you know, Justice X forgot his reading glasses, and, and they do have a phone in there. They can say, "And I or I need my favorite tea." Um, so you will have people knocking on the door. But then it's up to the the most junior justice. And Justice Elena Kagan told a story that even when she had injured her foot and it was in a boot, she was still the junior justice. And someone knocked on the door. And no one else got up. They expected her to get up and answer the door, even with her foot in a boot. Oh, my gosh. So hazing. A little bit of that, yes. Can you imagine being nominated to the Supreme Court? You go through the confirmation hearing. You show up on your first day, and you've got these eight senior justices. And, like, you are literally at one of the most important tables in the government. Get the door. <laughs> but you're the most junior one, so you have to answer the door. Right. Like, <laughs> the, the other uh, thing that is designed to bring newly confirmed justices down a notch is that the junior justice also gets appointed to the court's cafeteria committee. And Justice Kagan has had the most to say about this, where... They get lunch duty? They don't have to serve in the cafeteria, but it's the policy committee for the cafeteria. And as she has described it, it involves sometimes debating, like, where did the good cookie recipe go? And uh, how come we don't have the good chocolate chip cookies anymore? And and that is also a bit of hazing or a bit of knocking them down a notch. <laughs> this is fun. To finish the thought on then how do decisions get made? So they take that first, they have that first tentative vote, that first discussion of a case. And then after a few days, the chief justice, if he's in the majority, will uh, assign the majority opinion to himself or to one of his colleagues. And then that justice gets to work and is going to be the one really looking over the case and writing a proposed decision and then circulating it. Uh, and then let's assume there was like a dissent, a tentative dissent in that case. The the dissenting justices will, will decide who's going to take a stab at the dissent. Uh, that's also assigned by seniority. But they'll usually wait for the majority opinion to circulate. And then what the majority author is looking for is what's called in the court a join. Uh, and you see these little memos uh, that say like, uh, please join me in your fine opinion in this case. That's a vote that says, yes, I'm sticking with my tentative vote. And the dissenter might say uh, something like, I await further writing. That's a no. It's so polite. I mean, I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. good high level overview of how the whole thing kind of works. Um Let's talk a little bit about the role that the Supreme Court has played in shaping education over the years. How far back do we want to go, Jamie? I don't know. How far back should we go, Mark? So I'm going to tell you, I I did a little of my homework because I was not covering the court back in the mid-19th century. I'm just going to mention that, you know, so generally there were not a lot of school cases until we start getting to the 20th century. And just around the mid-1800s, uh, the court, what according to Perry Zirkel, a noted education law expert, now an emeritus professor at Lehigh University, he, he says the, the first kind of school cases the, the court dealt with involved you know, the law that passed in Congress that set aside one uh, sixteenth of every township, I think, mm. for public schools. And there were a couple cases that came up that dealt with issues of that. And I beyond that, I don't know that much about those cases, but not until we yeah. kind of get to very late 19th century and the Plessy versus Ferguson decision mm-hmm. uh, are we yeah. starting to get into issues that will resonate for, for quite some time. Obviously, Plessy was about rail cars, but it did establish a principle of separate but equal uh, segregation of the races. So just a few years after Plessy, the Supreme Court dealt with a school-related segregation case 
the decision came out in 1899 called Cumming versus Richmond County Board of Education. And just a couple years before that, the school board in Augusta, Georgia, voted to eliminate the lone public high school for black students in that mm. community. It was called Ware High School. It had about 60 students. This is at a time when, I mean, there weren't high schools for everyone in the country and certainly not for black students in the segregated South. Yeah, exactly. But in this Mm -hmm. town, there was. But the board said, we're not... Uh, closing this black high school based on hostility toward black students, but but there's just a lack of funds and we need to repurpose this building to be a grammar school for about 300 black students. And we, we were making that policy decision. But some local black leaders sued over that. They weren't really outright challenging racial segregation in education, as we would see later on. But they did argue that the board's action violated the 14th Amendment because Mm-hmm. Uh, the Equal Protection Clause, because it, the school board continued offering secondary education to white students. Uh, and of course, okay. black students could not okay. go to the white school. Yeah. So right. in that case, the Supreme Court right. ruled unanimously for the school board with Justice John Marshall Harlan, who had been the lone dissenter in Plessy, writing mm-hmm. the opinion for the court. And he said it was not a violation of the Equal Protection Clause for the for the school system to provide a high school education for white children, but not for black children. When the reason was a lack of funds and not hostility towards the black race. Oh. Absent that kind of hostility, he said the federal courts should should not interfere with a state program of public education. And that was kind of setting mm-hmm. a, a bit of a, a precedent for, for just the federal courts not getting too involved in education, which was you know right. largely a state matter. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. So they're basically just saying, because you've got some money problems, as long as you're not being hostile towards them, then separate, or then you're not violating the equal protection clause. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can treat people totally differently if it's a money issue, as long as you're not like hostile. Right, which kind them. of addresses two really interesting themes of equal protection law. And I guess the way the court relates to education is one, we see this like deference that courts have to local educational decisions and local educational practices and authority. authority. Yeah. Like there's, that's like a thread that we see in a lot of these cases, even when the court like, you know, does influence or make a decision that influences local practice, they always kind of talk about or are concerned about the appropriate role that the Supreme court or that the judicial branch has in kind of making those local decisions. They don't want to interrupt that too much. And then the other one that I think is really interesting from that, this case is the, intentionality aspect of a lot of these things so it's like it's not what you did it's why you did it and that i think like that that comes through in a lot in equal protection jurisprudence and even today right like Mm -hmm. the intent requirement of an equal protection claim yeah yeah that's interesting so then what happened after that so so i'm gonna stick with race for a little bit and i'll come back to some other early cases but just to stick with race since uh, obviously that's been a major uh, through line. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm also going to just quickly credit uh, my friend Justin Driver, who's a law professor at Yale Law School, and he has written the book, The Schoolhouse Gate, Public Education, the Supreme Court, and the Battle for the American Mind, which is all about uh, student constitutional cases in, in the court. Mm-hmm. It's the book I wish I could have written, but he's uh, much smarter <laughs> than I am. Right. You and me both. Yeah. And, so, um, yeah, and I'll just mention a case that came along in 1927 called Gong Lum versus Rice. And uh, here the, the court ruled that a Mississippi school board did not violate the Equal Protection Clause when it classified a student of Chinese descent as, quote, colored, unquote, the uh, language of the time, and barred her from attending the white high school uh, in in that community. And in in that case in the Supreme Court, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, former president, wrote the opinion, which held that this was a decision that was within the discretion of the state to decide without Mm. the intervention of the federal courts. So again, saying we're not going to get too involved in these state decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because education is not in the federal constitution, right? But it is in a lot of these state constitutions. Um, you know, almost all of those have, I think all of them do have an education clause. And so part of the story, I think that it's really interesting is that, you know, the U.S. Constitution, for most of the history, like we didn't have the 14th Amendment that came about after the Civil War. Um, and the 14th Amendment is how 
the Bill of Rights ends up getting applied to the states through the process of incorporation, which really only happens in, you know, the mid-1900s. And that's when, like, a lot of these education cases really come to fruition is when, through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, we start to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states so that now they also have to follow the U.S. Constitution. Right. Well, and it's also a combination of that and the massive civil rights movement in the mid-20th century when Mm -hmm. you've got all of these constitutional, you know... Yeah, the rights revolution, the civil rights movement. Um, If we're plugging books, uh, I recommend a book called Reclaiming Democratic Education by uh, Dr. Chris Thomas. It's a great book that covers the history of student and teacher protests. Who's that guy? I don't know. (laughs) I have to get that book. So just to kind of close the thought on race, because I think everyone's familiar with Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. Obviously, there were some higher education cases that helped build up to Brown, and I'm not going to go into all of those. But Brown is where the court overruled Plessy uh, and said separate but equal is is not acceptable. And uh, both uh, Cumming and Gong Lum are mentioned in the Brown decision. I had to look that up. Hmm. Um, and, and it class- kind of characterized them as, you know, they did not, those cases did not directly attack racial segregation in the schools. So the Brown decision uh, is, is certainly the one that most Americans would know in terms of uh, an education decision in the Supreme Court or any decision in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Um, so, so that, you know, we're at mid-century there, and obviously a lot came after that. But I'm going to then go back on, on, on a different topic, just some of the early uh, cases that, that got uh, the Supreme Court involved in education. So back to 1923, in a case called Meyer versus Nebraska, in this case, the court struck down a Nebraska law that barred instruction in foreign languages. And there was some provision about uh, some instruction could begin after eighth grade. But a private school Mm -hmm. teacher, this applied to public and private schools, and a private school teacher was charged with a misdemeanor for teaching German. You know, this was after right after World War Mm -hmm. One. The Supreme Court found the law to be arbitrary. But more importantly, the court held that the liberty protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment includes the right of parents to, quote, establish a home and bring up children end quote, and, quote, to control the education of their own. So this was basically the beginning of parental rights in education that we kind of hear a lot about today. Mm-hmm. And just two years later, in, in 1925, in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the court struck down an Oregon law that required public school attendance, thus kind of precluding enrolling your child in private or parochial schools. There's a lot of history to that, what was behind that movement. But in that decision, the court again held that the liberty of parents and guardians includes the right to, quote, direct the upbringing and education of children under their control. And the court said, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. Mm. This is the fundamental basis for parental rights in education. But I was with Justice Antonin Scalia once at Georgetown University Law Center, where he was talking about these precedents, and he had expressed this in, a, in an opinion as well, that you know, he didn't think this right to direct your children's upbringing was really in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And he really didn't like enforcing that. And, and his concurrence alone in uh, a case called Troxel versus Granville actually helped prompt an effort to get Congress to pass a parent's rights amendments. And there's been some new activity on that uh, recently. Interesting. So, yeah, the, the judicial philosophy of the justices is fascinating because like, you know, Justice Scalia, we often think of textualism, perhaps. And yeah, this right wasn't articulated by the Supreme Court until 1923. That constitution is a little bit older than that. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see how these arguments play out, even within the life of the court. So I'm going to jump ahead a few years to World War II, and uh, again, we're not we're not covering every uh, every decision sure. here, but, <laughs> no, but these are kind of the building blocks to where we got sure. to today. Yeah. And so, in, in 1940, the court upheld a school board regulation that required all teachers and students to salute the flag, usually done during the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, even if doing so went against their religious beliefs, and that was the Minersville versus Gobitis case. Uh, But that case caused a bit of backlash and the Mm -hmm. court in in a kind of a rare uh, just 
redo or do over in a short order uh, in 1943 in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett uh, reversed itself. And uh, that, that case involved a Pledge of Allegiance requirement, and that was challenged by a family of Jehovah's Witnesses. There had been backlash against the Jehovah's Witnesses against after the Gobitis decision. Uh, the, the West Virginia law called for the expulsion of students who refused to stand for the pledge and even the, the possible prosecution of parents. And, and the court did not really like that state law and, and, and did reverse mm-hmm. itself. The decision came out on Flag Day, June 14th of 1943. Probably not a coincidence. Um, yeah. And Justice Robert Jackson uh, wrote one of his most soaring and, and famous lines mm-hmm. in that decision. Uh, which said, if, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. Uh, and, and as Justin Driver has written, um, uh, th- that opinion really also went on to sort of help reconceive uh, notions about federal judicial oversight of public schools and the relationship between mm-hmm. schools and their students, kind of the beginning of student rights. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if I've said it on this podcast before. That is probably one of my all time favorite Supreme Court cases. And totally. Yeah, the opinion uh, is so well written. Uh, it's one of those where it's like, I wish I could write like that. <laughs> Just in, then, then we'll jump ahead to the 1960s. And 1962, in Engel versus Vital, school prayer, a school district on Long Island, New York, voted to require its students to recite the Regents' Prayer, something composed by the State Board of Regents. It was just kind of a 22-word general prayer to God. Uh, and an opinion by Justice Hugo Black, in that case, the court ruled that the Establishment Clause required uh, invalidation of that requirement. That caused kind of a big Mm -hmm. reaction in the country because that was the first step the court took to remove prayer from public schools. Uh, That was the court's first step to remove prayer from public schools, which had been quite dominant uh, in in many public schools for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the very next term, the court kind of doubled down in Abington School District versus Shemp, and uh, a companion case, uh, Murray versus Curlett, invalidating state laws that required recitation of the Lord's Prayer and, and verses to be read from the Bible at the start of each school day. Uh, Justice Tom Clark wrote the opinion for uh, the court in, in that case and really sought to clarify that schools could teach about religion, but they couldn't lead students in religious mm-hmm. exercises. That opinion by itself didn't cause as much uh, of a reaction as, as the first one had, but certainly the country heard about those for many years to come. Right. These education cases, it seems like education cases more often than not are blockbusters, right? To go back to our earlier conversation, these seem to be the cases that kind of really stir public opinion. And you can see how a lot of these issues are through lines throughout American history. Like we're still Mm -hmm. talking about the role of religion in public schools. Uh, We're still talking or, you know, if there's still conflict about who decides the curriculum, what should be taught, how it should be taught, all of those things. So, you know, hearing about these historical cases, we're still navigating these issues. And then just at the end of the 1960s, you have the court ruling in the Tinker case, which you guys had discussed recently. Uh, Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District involved the students in Des Moines who wore armbands to protest or, 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 in their view, just call attention to the Vietnam War, which was really just ramping up at that time. The, the protest took place in 1965. So well before we were in the worst of the war, and it took that long to get decided you know, in the Supreme Court. I've spent a fair amount of time with Mary Beth Tinker, her brother John Tinker, who were among those who wore the armbands, and uncertain exactly how many students did it, but three students were still involved when the case reached the Supreme Court, uh, Mary Beth and John Tinker and, and one other student. Uh, and of course, uh, the court upheld the students in that case and said as long as school was not substantially disrupted, that their First Amendment rights, uh, they had a First Amendment right to wear those armbands. Abe Fortas wrote the opinion for a 7-2 court, uh, which included his famous line, 
Uh, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. That was sort of how the Supreme Court closed out education cases in the 1960s. And when you get to the 1970s and the 1980s, we're not going to go through all the cases, but the court is suddenly dealing with a lot of issues that it brought to them, sometimes saying no to new rights, sometimes saying yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we could do a whole other episode probably. Um, and we will. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of those cases covered. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot. We're going to cover a ton of them. This season, you know, we're already starting to talk about cases for next season because there's just a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And new ones every day, including from the Supreme Court. Exactly. Well, maybe not every day if they're only doing 60 a year. Every (laughs) every six days, right? Mark, did you want to talk about any of those or were you going to focus more on like what's on the docket now? Uh, So... I just thought I'd talk about a few of the cases that are on the court's current docket and then and some education cases that are knocking on the door. So one of the cases the court has already heard arguments about involves social media of school board members. Obviously, uh, with the Brandy Levy case, we saw that the court has dealt with social media. Uh, and now the question in O'Connor, Ratliff versus Garnier Uh, those are two people's names, um, is whether public officials engaged in state action Mm. and thus would be subject to the First Amendment when they block someone from their social media sites. Oh, yeah. Uh, Especially when those... There's there's personal sites, although they're kind of their office Mm -hmm. holder sites, but they're not the school district's uh, social media sites. We started to see this a few years ago with that Trump case, but they didn't Mm -hmm. end up hearing... it wasn't it because right. of the time it's the same by issue the time they got there because uh, President Trump had a personal Twitter account and he did a lot yeah. of stuff on it uh, announcing government policies and and whatnot and yeah he uh, the court was deciding whether to take that up when he was not reelected and uh, the court dismissed that but Justice Clarence Thomas wrote uh, an opinion regarding that that said you know we should really take a look at this and, and now they've taken it up in case of a some mm-hmm. school board members and, and, a, and a companion case involving a city manager. Hmm. Um, so that's that's interesting. Now, is that an example of a circuit split there? Yes. Glad you asked, because that is as vivid <laughs> as a circuit split you're going to get, because the two <laughs> cases that the court heard at the same time, one circuit ruled one way and right. the other circuit uh, uh, ruled the other way. The school board members case is from California, so that was the Ninth Circuit. They ruled against the school board members, said that was state action. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other case is from Michigan, uh, and that's the Sixth Circuit, and they ruled that was not state action. Interesting. You know, given all of the, uh, well, I guess the best word to describe it is tumult uh, amongst school boards and all of that stuff that is pretty pervasive right now, this will be Mm -hmm. very interesting to see how the court deals with this, right? Right. And it goes back to our first episode, the Peltier case about, you know, whether or not charter schools are state actors. So like if we can get some clarity around state action, and I don't know if they'll, you know, charter schools, that issue will ever come up in a case like this, but like the more they say about what is state action, you know, that might clarify that issue too. Interesting. Uh, what else, Mark? So I think just one more that's on the docket that also just heard is a case involving job transfers in education. School districts, you know, are large employers. They're often involved in Title VII cases, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm-hmm. which bars discrimination based on race and sex and some other categories. And uh, although the case before them involves a police sergeant who alleged some sex discrimination in her transfer from a uh, a very kind of prestigious uh, assignment in the intelligence division to a more routine assignment, um, the the lower court in her case uh, said, yes, there may be the sex discrimination. We haven't had a chance to prove that yet, but your transfer was not harmful to you was did not have material Hmm. harm and and therefore it's not covered by title seven well there's Hmm. a bit of a there's a circuit split on that and uh there's actually uh in the briefing in that case a lot of discussion of school cases 
uh, and where this has come up, um, usually where the courts are applying that kind of material harm standard, but kind of reaching different results. Um, and then some of those questions, because uh, as we're recording this, this was just argued this week. And, uh, you, you know, teacher who thought teaching seventh grade was harder than teaching third grade. And, and of course, yeah. un, with an underlying allegation, there's some sort of impermissible discrimination involved uh, on the basis of race or sex or, or some other factor. Um, there have been a number of cases in which a high school principal has been transferred to the central office. Is that a yeah. promotion? Is that a, a demotion? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and actually, you know, school districts, called that a, a lateral transfer that you know right. wasn't certainly wasn't changing pay and that sort of thing um and most of the courts mm. have ruled that these these transfers do not amount to harm to the employee um but but the court just heard argument in that and uh, seemed a little bit to me inclined to rule for the employee the, the police sergeant in this case uh, and that, that uh, and, and then school groups did file a, a brief what's known as an amicus or friend of the court brief to say you know by the way we employ a lot of people and we are dealing with these issues and you know we're a, we are uh, organizations that have a lot of different work sites and we sometimes have to uh, transfer people who don't want to be transferred and and then what also what is a transfer right. that's not clear under title seven uh what if we just need someone to temporarily cover someone's classroom that kind of thing so it's gonna be a very interesting uh decision uh, with some ramifications for schools that's gonna be fascinating yeah wow our next case uh, that we're going to talk about mm -hmm. is Boring versus Buncombe County, and a component of that case uh, has to do with the teacher being transferred from a high school down mm -hmm. to a middle school and claimed that that was sort of retaliatory and mm -hmm. sort of a demotion and everything. And that case was from 30 years ago, so it'll be really interesting to see how this one plays out. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, what else we got? So then there are cases that are knocking on the court's door in this term. Uh, they might be acted on even in the, between the time we're recording this and it, it appears, uh, although probably not, uh, and they might be granted review in time to be heard this term, but we'll have to see. Uh, and one is a big follow-up from the uh, decision last spring uh, in which the court struck down affirmative action in higher education, pretty much as we've known it for about 50 years in the Harvard and University of North Carolina case. And the follow-up case involves a K-12 magnet school where the school district here in suburban Washington, the Fairfax County School District, was trying to uh, increase racial diversity, but did not have a race-conscious policy uh, in, in its admissions, in, in tweaking its admissions policy to this uh, elite Thomas Jefferson Science uh, Magnet School. And opponents of affirmative action have asked the court to take that up, and the court could decide on that soon. Mm. Uh, another case... <laughs> Uh, we've had a number, you know, uh, quite a few cases uh, about transgender students and transgender rights, including the, mm -hmm. uh, the one you talked about on a recent episode. But this one has flown a little bit under the radar and is now at the court, a uh, case called Metropolitan mm -hmm. School District of Martinsville versus AC. And Martinsville is in Indiana. Uh, and AC was a transgender student who wanted to use the restroom that aligned with uh, uh, his gender identity. And the, this school district said no. And mm. the Seventh Circuit in Chicago, which in, covers Indiana, uh, ruled for the student. And that okay. has been appealed by the school district. That Seventh Circuit decision actually covered two similar cases. Uh, as best I know, only the Martinsville School District has appealed this to the Supreme Court, that's the, the question presented there is whether Title IX, which is of the Education yeah. Amendments of 1972, bars mm -hmm. sex discrimination in federally mm -hmm. funded schools. So whether Title IX or the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment dictate a single mm. national policy that prohibits local schools from maintaining separate bathrooms based on students' biological sex. That's how it's worded by the petitioner, the, the the school district that's bringing this case. Yeah. And that's a really interesting way to phrase that question yeah. because it gets back to that interplay between like intruding on local authority, right? Like 
is it a single national policy or is this a place where we want schools to be able to do their thing? Yeah. 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 That'll be interesting because the interplay between Title VII and Title IX, so we recently had the Title VII case, um, Bostock versus Clayton County, which said that transgender discrimination is sex discrimination in violation of Title VII. Title VII and Title IX are often inform each other. Right. So it'll be interesting. And most of the lower courts that have then confronted the question of whether Title IX provides that same kind of protection have said yes. Right. Uh, exactly. And certainly mm-hmm. the, and the Biden administration administratively has put out all kinds of informal executive orders and is working on a formal regulation to that effect. Um, but that mm-hmm. is, you know, there, there are some people who disagree with that and are fighting right. that. Like sure. the 11th Circuit. And, and, right. and there is right. essentially a circuit split now on, on that. Yeah. 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 But in, in Bostock, um, that was Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts were in the majority on that opinion. and They're both still on the court. So it'll be interesting to see if the context yeah. in schools and because it's Title IX and because the, this issue about restroom access wasn't necessarily front and center in Bostock. So maybe there, there are enough things here to differentiate the two. But didn't they say in Bostock, in the dissent, I think it was it Alito or, or Thomas in the dissent, they actually referenced the potential implications that this decision has on mm-hmm. Title IX specifically? Yeah, that was Justice Alito who had quite a bit to say. And um, he also wrote a, a short opinion when the court denied the state of West Virginia some emergency relief in a uh, athletics uh, case, um, yeah. he, he again basically said, "You know, this this is coming our way," and uh, and I'm I'm quite concerned about how uh, this would affect Title IX. And and Justice Thomas did join him in both the Bostock dissent and in uh, that uh, mm-hmm. that brief opinion in in the West Virginia case. Yeah. So we kind of I think we kind of know where they would come out on that. Yeah. Right. Any other big cases or does that kind of cover it for now? So uh, one more case I'll mention. Again, this is we're talking about cases knocking on the door, not yet granted by the court, but uh, involves an issue that sort of comes from the 1970s. And uh, when the court last dealt with corporal punishment uh, in uh, the 1977 case of Ingraham versus Wright, uh, in this new case, it's called SB versus Jefferson Parish School Board out of Louisiana. I haven't really studied up on all the facts recently, so I'm, a, I'm not going to try and characterize the facts. I do know, uh, do know it involves uh, allegations of corporal punishment inflicted on a student in, uh, with a disability. And the questions there from uh, the student uh, is, is unconstitutionally excessive corporal punishment by a public school employee cognizable uh, under Section 1983. Uh, that's the general federal civil rights law that kind of allows a lot of cases to come into federal court. And they say that nine circuits have held that. Or is it not cognizable hmm. or something you could sue out as the Fifth Circuit holds? Interesting. And the second question is, should excessive corporal punishment claim against a public school employee proceed under the 14th Amendments? Shocks the constant standard, which is something that several mm-hmm. uh, circuits have held. Or the Fourth Amendment's unreasonable seizure standard, as the Seventh and Ninth Circuits have held. So they're trying to at least say there's uh, some circuit splits on a couple of different ways of looking at this. That would be great if the court could, um, let's say, fix its decision in Ingraham. Because Ingraham basically said... Didn't it just say that this is not cruel and unusual punishment? And basically, if you just if mm-hmm. you do this the right way, you've still got the right to do it. Right. Even though most states now have banned it. They've right? either... Like, you know, I think it might still be legal in a lot of states... But it's not in practice in most districts, even in states where it's still legal. And the, right? the court sure. has uh, bypassed some other opportunities in recent years to revisit this. Uh, so we'll see if this maybe maybe attracts their interest. You know, one thing in my historical overview is that uh, I didn't touch on is uh, that there's at least one member of the current court and one recently retired member, Justice Breyer, who uh, over the years they spoke out here or there, either in opinions or in public, to say that uh, kind of with the earlier thought about the court 
whether the Supreme Court should be hesitant to get into some of these things. And so so Chief Justice John Roberts and, and Justice Stephen Breyer both said to the effect that, you know, we're not so sure that we, you know, have the answers for for some of these questions and that we would do a better job than school boards and other policymaking bodies would in in, in dealing with some of these issues. Um, and that led uh, uh, to a time, there was about five years from 2009 to 2014 where there were no school cases taken up by the Supreme Court. Wow. Huh? And uh, Perry Zirkel is the one who pointed that out to me. And then I wrote wrote something about it. And and then, of course, that inevitably changed uh, and, and some cases, you know, that were just they couldn't resist or, or that had to be addressed, they, they, mm-hmm. they started dealing with. But that is just part of the overall theme is like, should, the, and this goes back to a much earlier decision, and I think it was Justice Jackson who worried, like, should the Supreme Court be kind of a national super school mm-hmm. board? They thought not. Right. That's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Man, that is a lot of law. That's a big... <laughs> That's a lot of history. I'm, one question is, would you be interested in coming back and joining us in the summer to maybe talk about how some of these cases played out? Absolutely. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll line up uh, another uh, special Supreme Court sidebar episode mm-hmm. for the summer where we, we don't necessarily yeah. need to go through all the history again, but we can focus mm-hmm. mostly on these, these cases that are on the docket right now. Recap the term, how it impacts education. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I am really, really happy that you were able to join us and help Mm -hmm. us shine a little light on the amazing role that the Supreme Court has played in education over the last couple hundred years, but especially over the last 70, 100 years, right? And Mm -hmm. um, two. Yeah, even two. Yeah. And we're going to talk about those. We've got, again, Kennedy versus Bremerton coming up. Uh, which was a, a huge case, a really interesting case, and I think we're going to be joined by one of the uh, one of the attorneys for the, the school district in that case on that upcoming episode. Yeah, there's just some amazing stuff that has gone on at the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, and we really, really appreciate you joining us today, Mark. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jamie and Chris, and like I said, the the podcast is a great idea, and it's. Uh, uh, and not not just a great idea, but you're you're doing it well, and it's super interesting. And I'll, I'll be tuning in to, to to whatever you got. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. We appreciate Thank you. That. And tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is probably a great time to kind of wrap things up uh, for this special first edition of uh, a Chalk and Gavel sidebar. So we hope that everybody is having a great holiday season. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, it's Well, this is not a radio program, so nobody's really tuning into anything, right? But thank you for <laughs> streaming this, for downloading it, or whatever it is that you kids do these days. Um, and... Uh, um, we look forward to... I'm so old. Um, we, we look forward to seeing you in the new year, folks, with more fun, fascinating cases. We're going to start out the new year with Boring versus Buncombe County. That'll be our next episode. Uh, so until then, ha- have a great holiday, and we'll see you all in the new year. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark.